0: So over the last 20 years in our home, my wife has done some amazing things in establishing a culture in our home. And one of the things that I'm just I'm sort of um, taken back by every time it happens or uh, when there's an event like a birthday or Christmas. One of the cultures she has established in our home is that of intentional gift giving. A lot of times when we see dates on the calendar or we see opportunities to give someone a gift, we kind of feel the pressure where we're just going to go through the motions and make sure they know that, that we're thinking of them. We say things like, I got to get them a gift. I got to get them a gift. I forgot to get them a gift. And, and and we want them to know that we love them, that we appreciate them, that we care for them. We want to be kind. But so often we rush through those opportunities without ever really thinking about the person. It's just kind of a task that we go through. Well, my wife has sort of debunked that way of gift giving in our home. There's nothing perfunctory about the way that she gives gifts. And she's trained our kids to do that, to really think about who they're giving a gift to and and how to make them feel unique and special. And this is on full display every Christmas morning. Danae doesn't allow for and has never allowed for just sort of free-for-all Christmas morning where the kids get up and there's gifts everywhere and they just tear into them and they're throwing them everywhere. Uh, There's no free-for-all at our house on Christmas morning. Gift opening is very strategically carried out. Each person opens one gift at a time. And everyone else has to stop and zero in and sort of anticipate. She builds up for what's about to happen. Oh, no, I think I know what that is. Oh, no, you're going to be so excited. This is going to be awesome. And everybody is just waiting for it with anticipation about what is about to be opened. Now, it takes a lot of time and a lot of money with six kids to go through that process every Christmas. But Danae really wants to delight in each gift and delight in our kids opening gifts. And she's always way more excited than the person receiving the gift. And if you were dropped into our house uh, on a birthday or or Christmas morning, you would think this is this is weird. You know, what's the big deal about some of these gifts? You know, uh, $15 socks with avocados on them. Why would someone be so excited about that? or a shirt she found at Goodwill which just specifically fits this kid's personality or a coffee cup that she, you know, bought for 50 cents at a yard sale and and this is j- this is the cup you need. I knew you would love this color. I knew you would love the way that it fills in your hand. This is your coffee cup and when I saw it I was thinking about you. Or a pair of shoes that was just casually mentioned over dinner, a certain color toothbrush, I'm just getting fired up about toothbrush and you got that color and I got this color, a unique watch band. And I get gifts and it's like I just look online and think, yeah, Jonah likes, you know, that team. And so I'm going to get that jersey and I click a button and and I always tell today, hey, I go in really excited. I got this deal on this jersey and she just sort of snubs her nose at it and it's like, yeah. Anybody can buy a gift like that. You know, it's just what's unique about getting online and buying someone a, a jersey. Wow. They have all kinds of jerseys. But she's modeled this excitement in gift giving and making each person the center of attention as they open the gift, as they delight in the gift. In our section today, Jesus explains this is the way we serve one another in the kingdom. We are so satisfied with the gift of the kingdom that we light as each individual around us opens it and is experiencing the kingdom before us. We saw it on full display here today. We love the gospel in the gospel. God has saved us from our sins. He has declared us righteous. He has We have been raised from the dead in Christ. We have a kingdom that is given to us, and so when we see someone else come into the kingdom and get the gift, we stand and receive it. We're Yes, we honor what is going on. You, Mitch, today was so nervous in his testimony, and I said, oh, it's going to be fine. It's not going to be a big deal, and I think he was the first standing ovation testimony. Everybody was looking at him. It. It's kind of like I am on... Christmas morning when all the kids are just watching me open gifts. I don't like to be the center of attention, but Jesus says, that's how we do it in the kingdom. Peter doesn't get it yet. Verse 28, because he comes to Jesus and basically says, what's in it for us? Last week, we saw a rich young man who came to Jesus and he said he wanted eternal life. And Jesus said, we have to love perfectly. You have to be good enough to love your neighbor as yourself. And he realized he couldn't do it. And he left. He went away sorrowful. Because Jesus is the only one who can save you. Jesus is the only one good enough and perfect enough to love us. Not just his neighbors, but his enemies. By giving himself and giving us eternal life. But this man turns away and he walks from Jesus. And so Peter's thought is, okay, we're still here. Notice verse 28. He said to him, we have left everything... And followed you. Look at us. Look who we are compared to this man. Jesus, it's not exactly impossible to leave everything and follow you. You just said it was impossible. Look, we've done it. And so the assumption is what's in it for us? We've left our businesses, businesses. We've left our families. We put our life on hold for you. We are walking around with no place to lay our head. What's in it for us? We're in the kingdom. What do we get? In Matthew, he Peter's almost bartering with him. He, he says, what's in it for us? What do, what do we get out of this? Look what we've done now. What do we get in return? And Jesus turns to him and says, truly, I say to you, no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. There's no one who does this who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, notice in this time, houses, brothers, sisters and mothers and children and land. Notice he says with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. What he tells Peter is you're. You don't even know what you're saying. You've left all these things. You left your family, your friends, your livelihood to follow me. Do you not get what the kingdom really is? Because if you understood the kingdom, you would realize you're getting way more than you've left behind. And he says here, even in persecution. And and this is why they leave their stuff for Jesus' sake and for the gospel You are going to be opposed for following me. We together are going to Jerusalem to be opposed. And Peter, you think you've lost a lot now? Guess what? You're going to lose a lot more. But you get even more in the kingdom. A hundredfold. The point of that is it's beyond imagination. The kingdom will replace all of your treasure. The kingdom will replace all of your places. And the kingdom will replace all of your people. In the kingdom, you get a hundredfold for everything that you leave behind. His point to Peter is what's in it for us? Jesus says the kingdom. The kingdom. You get the kingdom, which means you get everything. Notice verse 31. He says, but, and that's a very important word here, but, it's a contrast. You get all of this, but I want to warn you, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, Jesus has articulated this, this status in the kingdom, the the way the kingdom is ordered. And he refers to the way the world is ordered so often. And here he says in the world, it looks as though there are folks who are first. They're ahead of everybody else, like the rich young ruler. He has money. He has it all together. He's very religious. It would seem as though he's first in line to the kingdom. But that's not the way it's going to turn out, Peter. Because as he's told the disciples, you're like little kids with no status and you have nothing. And I'm going to hold you up. But you will be the ones who are ushered to the front. And you just saw the rich young ruler walking to the back. That's the way the kingdom works. It's not according to the status of the world. And so Jesus doesn't reward with status. He graces us with the kingdom. That's what you get when you come into the kingdom. That's what he's trying to communicate to Peter here. In Matthew, he tells a story at this point of a vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner is hiring all kinds of workers, and they come in at different times, and they're responsible for different things. And at the end of the day, they're all getting paid the same. And there's a protest. That's not fair. Some people have been here longer. Some people just showed up. Why are they getting the same thing? And Jesus says it's the master's. It is the master's right to pay whatever he would want. And at the end of the day, it's grace that you get to work in the master's vineyard. You get the vineyard. That's what you get. You get Christ when you get into the kingdom. It doesn't matter what, what, what place in line you are. And there's a subtle statement here. Even to Peter, many who come into the kingdom first will be last. And I wonder when he said that if his eyes glanced up at Judas. By all indications at this point, Judas would have been first into the kingdom. Judas was doing the same miracles that the disciples were doing. Judas had the same degree of sacrifice that everybody else there had had. And he had a warning. This man Will be moved to the way back of the line. And so Jesus doesn't reward with status, he just rewards with the kingdom. There's no level uh, in the kingdom, there's no order of status. And just because you came in first doesn't mean you get the first seats. Think about Paul, how he describes himself. He is the least of the apostles, he's last in line. And yet we look at the Apostle Paul and we say, that's the greatest missionary who ever lived. The man who used to kill Christians. And he says, you can't order the kingdom by the way the world orders kingdoms. It's different. The first will be last. The last will be first. And so we can't live this way in the kingdom. We all get the kingdom. We all get forgiveness of our sins, which should be enough, right? No matter where we are in line, getting your sins forgiven. We all are deca- declared righteous in Christ and loved by God as Christ is loved by God. We have a promise that we will be raised up from our grave. That's what we get in the kingdom. You get the kingdom. Jesus, what is our reward? The kingdom. That's what you get. There's no status. And we have to live that way in the church. Instead of asking Jesus what's in it for us, we look around and see what's in it for everybody else. They get their sins forgiven. That should excite us. We come in and by the world status, we are from all kinds of different backgrounds. We have all kinds of, uh, uh, of, of status and we have all kinds of, of history here today. We're in all kinds of different seasons in life. And if we began to look around, we would say some folks here, they they seem to be first in line. And then we would look around and say, no, but those folks are they're really bad. They ain't got this yet. They're still trying to figure it out. The reality is we're all getting the kingdom at whatever stage in life we are, whatever stage in our spiritual growth we're in. It is still the kingdom that we're after. You may be brand new to this church. You may have been here from the very beginning, serving and plugging and giving so so that this church can do ministry in this city. The reward's still the same. You get to come week after week and delight in the gospel. You get to come week after week and live in this glorious kingdom. There's no status in the kingdom. Notice the next section there. It is what we read at the beginning where Jesus turns and He predicts His death. He predicts the resurrection. And He's teaching His disciples, this is what it means to be great. To be crucified. And this is the way this kingdom that we keep talking about has come into the world. It is through suffering. One of the things that we have to we have to learn about the kingdom. The one who is first, who is Jesus has suffered the most. And God's plan for the greatest being, the most valuable person who's ever existed. God's plan for him is that he would suffer the greatest. And Jesus reminds them of that. Peter, you're standing around talking about what you're going to get out of it. Well, we're about to go to Jerusalem and we are about to suffer. Notice verse 35 after he declares to them what is happening. Notice James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now these two are called the the sons of thunder. And one reason for that is they're in Samaria at one time and they begin to look around and they don't like the people of Samaria and they look at Jesus and say, should we just rain down lightning and fire upon this city? Very brash, very bold men. They were fishermen. But their statement here is to jar us. Jesus is talking about leaving everything. Jesus is talking about being crucified. Jesus is talking about losing. Jesus is talking about becoming weak. And they say, notice the text, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Do I need to read that again? You're like, did they really say that? Whoa. Death? Cross? Hey, while you're at it, Jesus, you keep talking about going to Jerusalem, being crucified. While you're at it, would you do whatever we want? How, How bold and how brash is their comment? But it is a clear picture of their heart. They still don't get what is before them. A kingdom full of suffering. It's actually a kingdom that he just told them is going to give them everything a hundredfold. And they're still asking, will you please do whatever we ask? Now, what is even more pathetic about this scene in the other Gospels is that their mama shows up. Salome, who's actually his aunt. And she comes to Jesus and says, When you come into the kingdom, I want my sons to have the chief seats. I want them to be up front. She is the first lawnmower parent. She is the first helicopter parent. I'm sure she was meeting the the coach after every little league game and asking, why is he not playing shortstop? Why is he not leading off? That's who this woman was at this point. At the end of the day, she follows Jesus all the way to the cross and is still there as he is dying. So she gets it at the end. But imagine your mom calling your boss asking for a promotion. Or better grades. Don't tell me if that's happened to you. But imagine that. But there is no shame in it. And so verse 36, he said to them, what do you want me to do? Okay, what is it, guys? After all I've described doing for you, what is it that you want? And they said, "Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. We want the seats. When we get to Jerusalem and we set up shop in Jerusalem and we usher in and and your own Jesus, you can have the throne. Okay, you can have the throne. You be up front in front of everybody." Seated with a scepter and a crown. We're okay. That's okay. That's okay. You have that. You're Jesus. You deserve it. But when that happens, can we please be on the right and the left? We want to be up front too. We still want to be seen as great. We still want to have the head seats at the victory banquet. We want to be a part of decision making. We want to have the high and lofty chairs in the courthouse. Jesus, we still want our names on the door. You you can be king, but give us some power. You can still have your glory, but let let us have a spotlight too. You can have the main spotlight. You can be center stage. We'll be the backup singers, but people still have to see us. You still have to put spotlight on us. Notice verse 38. Jesus said to them, do you know what you're asking? Now, imagine his heart sank at that point after all he has described to them about the first being the last and last being first and about dying, being crucified. Guys, do you know what you're asking? You still don't get it. You still you still haven't processed this. You don't know. And a few weeks ago, we talked about that verse where it said the last shall be first and and th- those who are first shall be last and the last shall be first and what we said there is Jesus is t- declaring to his disciples you can't be first because you can't be me remember in philippians chapter 2 the one who is first Jesus he has all power he has all authority Philippians chapter two, he did not consider equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He was first. He humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself and became a slave. He humbled himself and became a curse on the cross. He went from first to last. And what does Philippians two say? And now God has highly exalted him and made him first. What he's saying is you don't know what you're asking. You're asking to be me. And you can't. You still want to be first. I'm the only one who is first. And the one who is in first in this scenario is the one who suffers and dies. And you can't do that. Notice he continues. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, here, a cup is a symbol of authority. And we think about kings who had their cup that had to be protected. It was a sign of their authority, it was a sign of their victory. And they were the first to drink when the victory came. He says, Are you able, what he's saying, are you able to accomplish this victory? And then he says, Are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And we've talked about this before, where baptism is a sign of judgment. When John the Baptist is preaching baptism, he is warning of a judgment that is coming. And he says, you better turn from your sin because there is a judgment coming. And that's why we are baptized. Because because we are turning from the judgment from our sins, the waters of chaos. We think about the flood. We think about Jonah. We have been immersed into judgment. And so what Jesus is asking the disciples here, you want the victory. So are you able to drink the cup that I drink as king? Well, if you are, you're going to have to get ready to be immersed into judgment because you can't do that. And these two, this imagery is combined here. The cup of victory is established to the baptism of judgment. And Jesus said, do you really understand what you're asking? And then notice their response. This is to shock us. They say, we're able. Understand, they still don't get it. After all this, they're not listening. And we talked a few weeks ago, they're missing the cross. They don't understand what the cross is about. They just want victory. And Jesus says to get the victory, you're going to have to be immersed into judgment. That's the way this works. The plan of redemption is dependent on wrath bearing and only Jesus can do it. So then he clarifies. Notice the text continues. Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized. You will be baptized now. They will suffer. James will be the first to die. He's beheaded. John will suffer on the Isle of Patmos and write the book of Revelation. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying you will drink the cup of my victory. And you will be baptized into the judgment that I am going to be baptized in. That's all coming to you. But you yourself can't do it. And you will celebrate the victory. And you, you, will, you will celebrate having been judged. But still, this is something Jesus must do. And here Jesus is explaining the, the gospel... And what it means to find our identity in him alone. When you believe the gospel, when you believe in Jesus, when you have faith in his cross, Paul uses this concept, you are in him. You are literally baptized in him. And so when you believe in him, his judgment... His baptism on the cross, as he's baptized by the wrath of God, that becomes your judgment. That becomes your baptism. The cross becomes your cross. It is not just credited to you in an account. That is the way God sees you because you are literally immersed into Christ. You can't tell the two of you apart. You're intertwined. That's what the word baptism means. It means to be plunged under. And so when God sees you... He sees you as someone who's already been crucified. And if you're someone who's already been crucified, you're someone standing there, with the cup of victory. It's all yours. And so Jesus says, you're going to get it, but you can't do it. You're going to get the cup of victory, but you can't do what it takes to accomplish the victory. And you are going to be baptized into judgment in me. By faith in me, it's all coming to you. And he explains here their identity and he's doing so to fight back their visions of greatness. To fight, fight back the way they want to see themselves in the world. They want to see themselves as great. And Jesus says, you're going to be as great in me. You're going to be seen as someone who's been crucified and raised from the dead. Me. How does it get any better than that? That is your greatness. And as soon as we understand that, we will stop being so disappointed with worldly greatness. We will stop being let down by the greatness we're pursuing in the world. The gospel defines us as righteous. Crucified, raised from the dead, waiting to rule with Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, that's who you are before God. That's your, isn't that great? Is that not greatness is what Jesus is saying to them? And so part of our witness in the world is, yes, we do strive for excellence. As a Christian, you should do things great and you should strive to be great at things It's a part of your witness. You shouldn't be lazy. You should do things with what we say excellence. You should be on time at your job. You should work hard. You should do things so well in your company that you are honored and promoted for it. But what Jesus is getting at here is you can't be defined by it. You may strive for excellence, but you are not defined by it. And by the way, that is our part of our witness. People see us living that way that we're not defined by the same greatness that they're defined by. They understand that the gospel is true. You're content in a greatness that that you don't have, that you can't accomplish in and of yourself. You're you're content with a greatness that is the greatness of someone else. That means we're not disappointed. By the way, everyone is living on this roller coaster of success and failure all around you you watch people when things are going well and they, they they get the job they get the spouse they want they're accepted at the school they want they're promoted in the ways that they want i mean they're at the top of the roller coaster things are great and then when it all falls apart they go crashing down And they're living at the bottom in failure. Part of our Christian witnesses is we're we're content in being crucified and raised from the dead, and so we're on an even plane. We're We're not too high with our success, but we're also not too low in our failure. What's the worst that can happen to me? I've already been crucified. What's the best that can happen to me? I already have the cup of victory. And that's a part of our witness in the world is we're not freaking out. We're not freaking out when our kids misbehave. We're not freaking out when we miss the the sales quota at work. We're not up and down. No, we're, we're trusting. We've been crucified and we've been raised from the dead. The cup of victory is in our hand. Even kill for Jesus. Notice, we're not disappointed by temporary greatness. Let me just say this. One of the things you're going to realize... Is that the success of the world, the greatness in the world, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. Takes us, some of us it takes us a long time to get there and realize that ministry success will never be enough. Great grades, academic accolades, athletic accomplishments, they will never be enough. You may strive for those things and it's good. In the right context to strive for those things. But it will not be enough greatness. You'll never be affirmed enough by your parents, your coaches. You'll never be applauded enough by your pastor, your kids, your husband, your wife. You will never achieve enough greatness where you will be content. You will never impress enough people as being healthy and funny and witty and smart and cool. It'll never happen. You'll never get to the point you say, I got it. I got enough of that greatness. You'll never grab enough power. The adrenaline fix that you have from calling the shots and being the person that everybody looks to. You'll never have enough of that power. Because you're not supposed to. Not supposed to be satisfied with that kind of greatness. Greatness. You are designed to be satisfied with the greatness of Jesus and all other greatness will pale. It will fall short until you look to him crucified and raised as your greatness. Notice Jesus continues here. He looks at him. He says, you're going to get all of this. This is going to be your identity. But to, but to set it in my right hand and my left hand, it's not mine to grant. It is for those who have been prepared. And we think, hold on, Jesus, you're king. What are you talking about? Jesus is is giving them a sign of humility here. Jesus is saying the father prepares all of these things. And if I can trust the father to be crucified and humiliated and raised from the dead, you can trust the father to make sure you are properly seated in the new Jerusalem. What are you worried about? Notice verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, you would think they would just say, guys, come on, you still don't get it. Crucifixion. We're going to lose in Jerusalem. Not going to be any chief seats right now. No, they start fighting with them. They become very angry. And what's going on? Guys, we want chief seats. Oh, you think you're in the inner circle, you and Peter, y'all always around Jesus, you think you're so important, you go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you, you got, you, you guys think you're special. And now we see it, it's on full display, you think you're so special, and they begin to fight like, like middle school girls on a dance team. I wanna be up front. Like Travel Ball, parents. I, I want my kid up front, and they begin to go back and forth there's infighting. notice verse 42 and Jesus called at this point and we all have ourselves in the place of disciples Jesus is so kind and compassionate because at this point, if you're honest, you would be at your wits end over and over even in the same conversation, guys. You don't get it. You don't get it. You don't get it. And he says, you know, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile, the world's rulers, they lord it over them. What are you saying is in the world, you look at people with power and greatness and, and how did they get there? Well, they got there by asserting their power, by asserting their greatness. And what do they do with their power? The text says they rule over it or Lord, they master it over people. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This is the way of the world. Men are considered great. And what do they do with that greatness? They use it for their own benefit. They leverage their power for themselves. So that they are considered great ones. So that they are seen. Think about the Caesar's and the Herod's and the emperors during this time. The most famous rulers at this time in history were tyrants. Who exercised out of fear. They longed to be worshipped. And how did they do it? They lorded over people and they mastered over people. They used their power for whatever they want. And he's saying, you guys be careful because that's in your heart right now. You want to be great? And as soon as we get to Jerusalem and I put you on those seats, you're probably going to turn around and want to execute vengeance against everyone who opposed us. The scribes, the Pharisees and everyone. I see that in your heart right now. He's rebuking them for acting like the rulers of the day. And he says, it shall not be so among you. That's not the way we're going to function. That's not the way we're going to do things. How are we going to do it? Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all in the kingdom. This is how greatness is achieved. This is what God honors. Okay. When you could be first and assert your power. And you step to the back. And assert, assert humility. You are active. You are engaged And notice not trying to be a king, a Lord, but being a slave. When God looks at the church and he says, who is the greatest? It's those who slave most of all, who get to the back and are willing to wash feet, who get to the back and are willing to wipe crumbs out, out of people's beard. That's what Jesus is describing for them. Slaves who do the menial task. He says, you want to be great ambition, by the way, ambition is not wrong. It's not a sin to be ambitious as long as you're ambitious to be a slave for others. This is the picture he paints. And you think, whoa, Jesus, that's not right. That's not how that's not how I feel. I'm supposed to be the very best at everything. I've been taught that I'm the center of the universe. I've been taught that the world is to revolve around me and serve me. But notice verse 45. Jesus isn't saying to them, I, Jesus isn't calling them to do something that they're just unable to do. He, he's making demands on them, per se. Verse 45, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. that is a scandalous verse because we know the son of man, according to Daniel, is God's ancient king who will crush other all other kings and he will rule over all other kingdoms. That's who he is in the Old Testament. He deserves to be served, right? Jesus deserves to show up on the scene and say, bow down. This is my world. That's what he does. That's his Right. But his mission is not to be served, but to serve. And how, sorry, how does he do it? He gives his life as a ransom for many. Notice the way the kingdom works. The first goes to be last. The king goes to be a slave. Jesus uses his power, authority and right to rule for our greatness by becoming a slave for us. Notice a ransom for many. And what is the ransom there? It is his very life. His life is the payment of our sin. Jesus, who is king, becomes a slave to free the slaves from their sin. And he is considered a sinner on the cross so that we may be free from our sins. He submits himself to bondage, the bondage of sin and death to free us from our slavery. So when we go back up at verse 43 and he says, this is not so with you. It is not to be so among you. He's not just talking about them. He's talking about him. You look at the world, you see the way that other kings function. That's not the way I'm going to function. I'm going to die so that you might be free from your sin. And think about the Roman world at this time. The Roman world was was a world where rulers, they loved symbols of their power. Their power was was on their currency. They had statues built to them. Their faces were everywhere. Caesars, emperors. they, They loved their power. And one of the symbols that was used to assert their power was a Roman instrument of torture. A Roman instrument of torture that was to assert and humiliate and, and cause people to fear, call people to to tremble before the power of the Roman world. Jesus uses this symbol of power and humiliation and fear to provide us freedom, and when he does so, he flips on its head the power of the world. He says, that's not the way we're going to do things. I'm even going to take the world's power and humiliate it. And then he calls us to do the same thing. You take up your cross and follow me. You don't function the same way the world functions according to power and greatness. You carry a cross. You're not going to carry an image of yourself. Refuse the world's power by becoming a slave. Now, the root of our freedom, how we're able to do that is Jesus is our ransom. Because in our hearts right now, we go, I'm okay with doing some good things and serving some people that I really like. You know, there's some people that I do a lot of great things for. I get them gifts. I send them sweet text messages, encouraging them. I, I, I'm okay with serving some people. I'm not going to go all the way to the back and serve everybody. I'll go about halfway. So how do you get to the back? How do you become how do you consider yourself a slave, a servant of all? Well, here we look at the verse and it is Jesus himself. His life is our ransom. How does that make us free? Jesus is self-sufficient. When Jesus gives his life for you, he's not looking for you to pay him back. He is self-sufficient. He needs not. He doesn't have to demand anything from you. When Jesus even died on the cross and gave his life as a ransom, there was nothing that was diminished in his life. Actually, the value of his life was displayed in full as a payment for sin. And so when you think about Jesus as your king, as your Lord, as your master, he is the only king. He is the only Lord. He is the only master who needs nothing in return from you. We like to talk about freedom as Americans. We like to talk about being free from things in the world. I'm going to be retired and I'm free to do whatever I want. We like to talk about freedom, but you never really know freedom until you know Jesus. Jesus' government isn't a government that's going to tax you to replenish the funds. It's not going to happen. Jesus is a bank that's going to charge you interest. For your debt. Jesus isn't that friend or parent when you borrow money from them, they loan something to you and they say, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. No, 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 take it. But, you know, the rest of your life, there's just that awkwardness, right? They did that. They were without that, whatever it is, for a while so that you could function. That's just awkward. That's not Jesus. There's no awkwardness in the gift that he's giving us. All He requires for us is that we would live free in Him. That that is the source of your freedom, that Jesus doesn't need you to pay Him back. And so you don't worship, you don't serve because you are indebted to Him. You serve and you worship because you are free in Him. You enjoy the freedom of serving Jesus, who is the ransom. You can never pay Him back. And this is the same freedom that allows us to give ourselves to others. If you don't know, if you don't owe Jesus anything, why are you requiring anything from anybody else? If Jesus isn't demanding of you, why are you demanding of others? That's what frees you up to slave and serve others is that you're not looking for anything in return how refreshing it is for others to be around you because they know the very things you're doing. You're not leveraging it for something in return. You can literally walk up to people in the church and say, I don't need you to love me back. I'm going to love you anyway. I don't need your allegiance. I don't need your commitment. I don't need your acceptance. I don't need anything in return from you. I don't need your approval. Why? Because I have God's approval. I have God's love. I have Jesus's commitment to me. So I don't need that from you so I can serve you and slave for you as Jesus has done for me. So in closing, I want to ask you today, what are you requiring of others? There, there's people in your life that you're having a really hard time loving and serving. And you read your Bible and you say, I need to love and serve them. Why can't I do it? Why can't I do it at work, at home, in the church, in fr- Why can't I serve them? Well, the question is, what are you demanding from them? When you show up at work, are you demanding to climb the corporate ladder? Are you demanding the next step? And that's you see everybody as stepping stones, rungs on a ladder. And you I will do this. I will serve this person. If it means I, I level up, I will do this thing. Nobody else wants to do. If I get to level up, well, you have it all in Jesus. What, what are you leveling up? You have the kingdom. You have the gift. People should be amazed at work. Are you doing this just to butter me up for a promotion? No, I'm doing it because I'm a Christian. Are you going to stab me in the back one day? You're being so nice to me. This is the way the world works. No, I'm doing it because I love Jesus and I don't have anything to lose. You'll probably stab me in the back one day. At church, we don't serve one another looking for return service. I'll take care of your kids. You take care of mine. I'll be there when you need me. You'll be there when you... We don't do that. Hopefully, that's the way it functions. We're not walking around. Community me. Community me. Look at all I do around here. And we just show up and we serve. We don't need anything in return. In your house. Even with your spouse. What are you requiring of them? Relationship with your kids. Family dynamics are so hard. Look into there and say, what am I requiring of this other person? That they meet some sort of expectation. I will love them if they love me back. I will forgive them if they forgive me back. And Jesus says here, no, you... You don't demand anything from anyone. You have it all in the gospel. And so the question for us today is, why are you demanding a ransom? When you have the gift. When you should just be looking around and excited that you have the gift and that you're able to be a smart, small part in giving the gift to others.